0: We'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 as we pick up in our series Unstoppable. We find ourselves in the city of Ephesus as Paul is making his way through the areas of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and that of Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. And he has been uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in city after city. And in doing so, he's planting churches. And, And this journey has been an incredibly fruitful one. God has done awesome works through uh, the Apostle Paul and he's used it to change lives in fact in Acts 19 verse 20 where we ended up um, in our last study before Christmas we get a snapshot from Luke about what is going on in the times and places around the church in Ephesus and this is what it says so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily what an answer of prayer That should be our prayer, that in the Fox Valley area, in the places where we live, that the Word of God and the power of God would be working in a mighty way. And that's exactly what's going on. As people were being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, living holy and upright lives, opening their mouth and declaring to the world their love for the Lord Jesus Christ People's lives were being changed in dramatic ways. Just earlier before verse 20, we see that the sorcerers in the city of Ephesus gave up all of their sorcery and gave up their wicked ways and and literally burned their uh, uh, tools and uh, and equipment of evil doing and sorcery. They threw it to the fire and to have it be burned up. And it was a costly sacrifice. 50,000 pieces of silver was the measurement of cost. They were willing to give up all of those things to better serve the Lord and honor Him with all that they did. People's lives were being changed. But we learn something from Isaac Newton. In his third law of motion, we are reminded that with every action comes an equal and opposite, help me out, reaction. Reaction. So as the gospel is moving forth, because his law of motion it also is seen in the law of the church, that when the church moves forward, when the church starts to storm the gates of hell, the devil doesn't sit back and say, well, we lost this, we might as well give up. No, the gates of hell fight back. They begin to push back. In our passage this morning, we are going to see that though there is great advancement with the gospel and for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus, the devil has a counteroffensive, has a counter-revolution take place. And with every movement towards God that a city takes, the devil is going to do everything in his power to bring it back to the dark side, if you will. And the city of Ephesus was an important city. The city of Ephesus wasn't the biggest city of them all, but it was a city known for idolatry and immorality. We talked about some weeks ago that the city of Ephesus, sitting in what is modern-day Turkey, was a cosmopolitan and commercial center. It was known uh, for really two things. First of all, the theater that it had in the city that would seat more than 20,000 people. You can still visit the ruins of that theater today. And if you think about it, that's a big theater. That would rival the size of the United Center. But what was most important what was most prestigious of the city of Ephesus was the temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana. This was a huge temple. It was one of the seven uh, ancient wonders of the world. It would dwarf the far more well-known temple called the Parthenon in Greece. It was almost seven times larger than that famed temple in Athens. And people loved to come and loved to be a part of the worship of Artemis. And they would do so by living lives of great debauchery. Artemis, or Diana, as she was known, was the goddess of fertility and the goddess of, in many ways, love and sensuality. And so people would come, and they would uh, come to involve themselves in all kinds of immorality with the help of male and female prostitutes that numbered in the thousands. And you would come and you would engage in all kinds of uh, debauchery and immorality as a way to pay homage to the goddess of fertility and as you were leaving you would want to take home a statue a relic and you'd want to take that home so you could continue your worship of this goddess now the reason why Ephesus was the place of the worship of Artemis, at some point in the past, and we're not told, but it's alluded to in the text we're going to look at, a rock, probably a meteor, came down and fell near the city of Ephesus, and it was to them a sign that they were to pay homage to the fertility that they had, and Artemis was sending a sign to her subjects that she was a powerful goddess, one to be worshipped. But other than that, worship went on, until that is Christianity starts making its way into the city of Ephesus and the surrounding communities and we are going to see that through the Advancement of Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ through his companions that Christianity had made massive inroads into the life and the times of the people around Ephesus. So much that people started turning away from the false god of Artemis, goddess of Artem- goddess Artemis, and turning to the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that creates a problem. And so that brings us to the problem today. So let's look, first of all, at the situation in Ephesus. Let's look at the situation in Ephesus. First point, I want to move quickly through it, but I want you to know what's going on. What's taking place in Ephesus and why does it matter? And then I want to invest more time, even than I did in the first service, focusing in on two responses and two reasons why the incident in Ephesus Has huge implications to us today so let's pick up starting in verse 21 it tells us after all these different events in Ephesus Paul makes his way through Macedonia goes to Jerusalem says he's got to see Rome and then he finds and he stays for a while in Asia he stays in Ephesus now it says about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius a Silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only about this trade of ours, that it may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis, that it may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worshipped. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, and uh, macedonians who were paul's companions in travel but when paul wished to go in among the crowd the disciples would not let him even some of the asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater now some cried one thing and some another and the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? "...seeing then that those things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we, are in dan- we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So let's break down what's going on, okay? First of all, we learn right away, there's a riot that Luke shares about. There's a riot. We are told there is no small disturbance, no little disturbance So that speaks of the crowd size that's taking place. A group of people have gone together, and there is a commotion, we are told, at the end of the passage. So a riot has broken out in the streets, and it moves its way into the theater. We are told the reason for the riot. The reason for the riot is is that a group of tradesmen, silversmith, led by a man named Demetrius have come together and they have an issue. Who's their issue with? Their issue is with Christians. They have a problem with people who are a part of what is called the way. The reason why the Christians are called the way probably is a play on words, whether a derogatory one or one that Christians themselves had given themselves, based on John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, no matter if unbelievers gave them the title or Christians had received that title as their own, what this is an issue of, and the reason why Luke spells it out that way is to say their issue isn't a personal one, it is one against all of Christianity. Well, why are they so mad at Christians? Is it because of their political views? No. Is it because of their moral stance? No. Is it because they uh, have boycotted something in particular? No. We are told in the text that the reason why they're so mad at Christians is because Paul has been going about making disciples under one pretext. And that pretext is, is that gods made with human hands are not gods at all. And we know from what Paul has been teaching in Ephesus that the only God we are to worship is our God in heaven, Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and His Son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And that we can have an ongoing and vibrant and healthy relationship with the invisible God, and that any God that's created who is not the God of the universe is not a God at all. Now, why would the silversmith be the ones that would have such an issue? Because it hit their bottom line. And so these guys made a living off of people buying silver shrines and relics and statues to the goddess Artemis. And now so many people are coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that their market share gets smaller and smaller. And so this union of tradesmen gets together and says, what are we going to do to stop the stealing of the market share? Because as God gets bigger, Jehovah God, the God of the way, the Christians, is getting bigger. The following after Artemis is getting smaller and smaller. And they're watching year after year their profits get smaller and smaller. And so what does the mob do? The mob does what mobs do. They become irrational. And with all kinds of confusion, they grab two of Paul's closest associates who had been traveling through Macedonia with him. They grab, him, grab them and they drag them into the theater, that uh, theater that rivals the size of the United Center, and a greater and larger commotion begins to break out. Now the Jews are concerned about this. And there were Jews in Ephesus. We know there was a synagogue in Ephesus from the passage before us and they get concerned and one of the reasons why Jewish people always got concerned in the first century is they never wanted to be associated with the Christians and so they know Jesus was a Jew they know for the most part the Jewish people were the beginnings or the the ones who had started the Christian movement and so someone says, hey, get Alexander up there. Alexander, you say something. Make sure they know that this isn't a Jewish thing, so, so we as Jews are safe. And as soon as they get up there, the crowd realizes, man, this guy's got nothing to say. We're not even going to let him talk. And for two hours, a chant breaks out, great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. Well, as things start to probably get more and more... Uh, if you will unstructured as mobs do a town clerk unnamed we don't know who he is but we know his position he serves in some level of the government gets up and he says hey listen let's settle down and let's recognize a couple things number one we're not gonna lose all that we think we are and that's a true statement here's the thing as great as the gospel is the gospel never says that all of the world will be saved And so the town clerk, man, he's a smart dude. And he says, no matter how powerful the gospel is, he's assuming, and rightly so, that there will always be dissenters and there will always be, listen, a need for a temple to Artemis. There will always be a need for idol worship. And he says, number two, the Christians haven't done anything or said anything against Artemis in particular. So why are you getting all mad? What they've said is... All gods made with human hands aren't gods at all. That's their opinion, that's their feeling, and yeah, they're getting some people together, but there's nothing in Roman law that says they can't say that. In fact, the only thing that can get a Christian into trouble, which will get Christians in trouble in the days to come, is to say that Caesar isn't God. That was the Romans issue. Romans really didn't care so much about the different Greek gods that were around uh, the area of Macedonia and that. And he says, so be careful. If you really want to deal with this, take it to the courts and bring these men before the proconsuls and address it that way. But notice the response. There's a response. Before the town clerk speaks, they're enraged. They're ready to kill these two companions of Paul. Had Paul made his way in there? they would have killed him probably too. I want you to notice the response of the crowd. There's confusion. There's mob rule going on. But I want you to also recognize, and we'll talk about this in a moment, the response of the Christians. Notice here that we have half a chapter where a Christian hasn't spoken. Nowhere in the book of Acts do we have that. And so what we have is a fully secular experience transpiring. And what we see, just a little bird's eye view into what's going on with the Christians. And we're going to see a varied response of how the Christians think they should respond. Paul says, let's go in and address it face to face. Other Christians say, no, let's do something different. And we'll talk about the great truth and wisdom we can apply from their varied response. So we've got angry crowd. We've got people trying to temper the crowd because of their anger, and we've got a varied response from the Christians. Now, that's the situation. Now, we don't know what transpires after it. Here's what we do know about, in essence, what happens in the city of Ephesus. Number one, it would seem from secular history that we know that the town clerk was wrong in some ways because at some point the worship of Artemis became less and less and it's a ruins now there's nothing left of it and the ruins are there really in the next couple hundred years the worship of Artemis is is non-existent but what do we know about the church in Ephesus the church of Ephesus would go on strong for another 500 years. In fact, one of the great church councils that would happen in the 4th uh, and 5th century would happen most likely in the city of Ephesus, but probably within the dwelling or the the site of the church at Ephesus where the doctrines of the worldwide church would be discussed. And so that church that Paul plants, that the uh, book of Ephesians is written to, is a church that would go on for years. And today... We talk about Ephesus, even though there's still a city there, you can still visit it today. The reason why most people visit the city of Ephesus is to know the impact that the church of Ephesus and the Apostle Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ had on that city. And to go pay homage and to visit the places where the gospel went forth. And so we see that the gospel in many ways is another example of the unstoppable work. And yet... Here in this setting, we see a counter-offensive. When you step out in faith, when this church starts doing what God calls it to do, we will see many people come to know Jesus Christ. But I want you to know, with every spiritual action, comes an equal and opposite reaction. Be aware that the devil will not sit idly by and watch this church and watch you do great things for the kingdom of God. He's going to push back. And he's going to push back, listen very carefully, not through a phantom, not through a ghost, but he will use people to push back the gospel. And he uses Demetrius as the one who is going to rile up a group And get them all charged up to stop Christianity because Ephesus is a city that the devil doesn't want you to lose. I want you to know there's a battle going on for our cities. There's a battle going on for the city of Sugar Grove. There's a battle going on for the city that you live in. And there are moments and times where the gospel will make inroads. Yesterday, I love my city where I live, in the city of Hinkley. And I had an opportunity to speak in front of hundreds of, of my townspeople on the occasion of a death of a young man in our community, and I got to push back darkness in a time of great sadness before my community and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And I've got to know, and we've got to know, that when we take steps of faith and we do what God calls us to, the devil's not going to sit back and go, I guess we lost Hinckley, Tim, and and, and Jesus Christ. They've they've taken it and we're going to give up and And no, the devil says, let's send everything our way to stop that. Let's do everything in our power to keep that from happening. So we've just finished a month where we have dedicated ourselves to this adage of being all in for Christ. You think the devil's going to sit and say, okay, village, you can do that. Oh, he's going to come with us, and he's going to throw everything that hell has at us. And he's going to do it through evil people. And I don't know what that's going to look like in your life, but I can't tell you how many times I have been blown away and even at times sideswiped. By the works of the devil, after I have taken a big step of faith for him, or seen God work, and so we need to be ready. And so what do we learn from this? Number one, we learn that there's a battle going on, and we need to be really, really careful not to uh, make enemies of the people that the devil uses against us, but recognize what Paul tells. How important is this, that Paul tells the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 6, that it's we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And I wonder if he has Demetrius in mind the guy that's trying to ruin his life, the guy that's trying to raise a rabble against him, that he says, God, we don't wrestle against the Demetriuses of the world, but we wrestle against the princes and the powers and principalities of the dark forces. It's the devil who's empowering. Think of it this way. We do great things for God when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The world does evil things for the devil when he fills them with his spirit. And so we are dealing with individuals who have allowed themselves to be filled with the power of hell itself And we are told that it's not the person we're fighting. It's the power behind it And so we need to love and we need to be careful not to fall prey into their ideas and their thoughts and their ways But to recognize it's a spiritual thing But what about ourselves? What can we learn from a story that doesn't really involve Christians all that much? We've got just a couple statements about Christians being dragged in, and Paul and some disciples wondering on what the best strategy moving forward is. What are we to learn from it? I have two applications I want to spend the rest of our time in. Number one, I want to talk about the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. It makes total sense that the people of Ephesus would have struggled with idolatry. It makes total sense that unbelievers as a whole would struggle with idolatry. This is the core of the problem. Notice verse 26. The reason why there is a riot breaking out in Ephesus is because Demetrius says, this is from a pagan's lips, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. The issue at hand isn't an idolatry issue. It's not a business issue. That's a symptom of the problem. It's not a commercial issue. It's not a tradesman issue. It's an idolatry issue. They believe that these gods that they make are gods unto themselves. And Christians are saying they're not gods. We worship the one and true God, and there is no equal, no competition to that God. Now here's the problem. As we announce that to the world that is filled with idolatry, We today, just as they did, run the risk that we will buy into what they're selling instead of them buying into what we're selling. And what happens is, is the world is advertising, find an idol. Find an idol. Maybe Artemis isn't your idol, but you can find one. And there were hundreds of idols and hundreds of gods and goddesses that you could follow in the days of the first century in Ephesus. And they're advertising, and they're selling to you. Pursue an idol. Invest in an idol. Now you say right away, Tim, I I don't have idols. And you look around your house, and you're like, I don't see any statues. I don't have any gold images or brazen images. I haven't created a calf like the children of Israel did in the story of the Exodus. I didn't do that. I don't bow down to anything. And so I can say as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have no idolatry in my heart. And I'm going to tell you, you have bought into a lie. You have bought into a lie. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to share with you. You, Many will bristle at and will argue with me. But I hope and pray that I'm able to show you through my own life that we've all got idols. The reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory perpetually making idols. We're making idols all the time. But what is idolatry? If it's not simply the worshipping of statues, as that's a symptom of idolatry, bowing down and worshipping something, what is it? John Piper, uh, the pastor, uh, well-known pastor in uh, Minnesota, put it this way, an idol is the thing that is loved, or the person loved more than God. So it's a thing or a person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. Now, Let's recognize that idolatry is the common theme in all of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, Garden of Eden, all the way through the Garden of Gethsemane, what man's problem is, is man is an idolatrous people. In the garden, we could have pursued God. We could have loved God. He was a great God and He's an awesome God and He gave Adam and Eve all that they needed and they turned away from the one true God and they worshiped created things that was being sold by the serpent. And we see it in the nation of Israel. God loves on them and cares for them. He brings manna down from heaven. He causes Pharaoh to let the people go. And they go out and what's the first thing that they do? They get mad at the one true God and they build an idol unto themselves. We see idols in the life of Samson. We see idols in the life of the patriarchs. We see idols in the life of the kings. We see idols in the life of the people that the prophets spoke to. And even we are reminded that Joshua says, choose this day who you're going to serve. A reminder each and every day that idolatry is all over the place. And he says, you can pursue the idols of the world or you can pursue the one true God. And that is perpetually the question we as Christians have to ask each and every day. Who are we going to serve? Because there's a lot of idols in our world today. In fact, the book of Romans gives this indictment when Paul says that we have turned away from the Creator God to worship created things. It's the great theme. Now, these merchants in Acts chapter 19 had some idols in front of them. Number one, the easy idol to point out was Artemis. Artemis was an idol. But I want you to know their business was an idol. They were going to protect their business at all costs. They wanted their wealth to remain. And so money was an idol to them. And third, the greatness of the city that they were a part of was an idol. And we have idols in our own lives. But 21st idols don't look the same. So let me give you four descriptions of what an idol is and how to detect it in our lives. Number one, idols are usually good things that we make into gods. Now I want you to know usually you do not um, become an all-out, a thing doesn't become an all-out idol in one day. It takes time as we give room. And how do we give room to idolatry? The first step of giving room to idolatry is devaluing the God of the universe in your life. So you are susceptible to idolatry, all-out idolatry. And maybe you haven't even bowed the knee to a thing yet, but what you've done is you've devalued the God of the universe. Be very, very careful, my friends, when God gets smaller and smaller in your life even though you haven't bowed down to anything else. I will tell you, human existence and human experience tells us this. God has placed a place of worship in every person's heart. And when God starts to have less and less of that space in your heart, something else will fill it. So maybe in 2018 your relationship with God got less and less. I want you to know it's not like this place is a vacuum and nothing filled in. I want you to know other things started to take precedence, priority in your life. And so these people at some point turned away from the one true God and gave themselves to Artemis, gave themselves to their money, gave themselves to their city's greatness and importance. Now you sit there and say, okay, What could those things be? Piper goes on and he says, Listen, your God could be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It could be good grades. It could be a retirement plan. It could be your kids. It could be the approval of other people. It could be the success in a business or a church. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be possession. It could be hobbies. It could be a musical group or a sports team that you're following. It could be your immaculate yard or a dress that you just put on. It could be almost anything. And then he cites again Calvin, and he says, the mind and the heart of man is very good at creating idols. So how do you know if you've got an idol? Well, idols, listen, write this down, engage. They engage our deepest emotions. So we see the spectrum of emotions that takes place in the life of of the Ephesians. So twice we see the phrase, great Is Artemis of the Ephesians and for two hours they chant over and over again great is Artemis of the Ephesians great is Artemis of the Ephesians and then we're told that when Artemis is challenged they are enraged and that they drag people in and they're ready to do harm to people how dare you two individuals be a part of something that in any way hinders the work of artemis we've got the spectrum great ecstasy and great anger with regards to their idol now you sit there and say well i don't have any kind of idol like that now i'm going to hit really close to home now this is where you're going to start writing letters to me tomorrow tonight tonight we will watch a sports team and some of you including your pastor, some of us have been thinking about, dreaming about, wishing and hoping, listening to other people talk about a game that's going to take place. Thousands of people are going to watch it live in person in a temple that's been almost a billion dollars to put together and it will be a raucous crowd that will put its attention and its focus and I quote you will hear great are the bears great are the bears great are the bears and in America we always do it more than the Ephesians it will take three hours not two And when the Bears score, all across our city, there will be great enthusiasm. And it won't be just of those who have bought into the idol of professional football as unbelievers that will cheer like that. There will be Christians who have never given an enthusiastic cheer about the name of Jesus Christ, but when a man scores a meaningless touchdown in a meaningless game, we will lose our excitement and our our cool, because we will celebrate with such enthusiasm as how great the Bears are. Here's the problem. We say we're followers of the one true God. And with the same enthusiasm, listen, you want to know if you have an idol? What brings you the greatest happiness? And you say, and there's women right now saying, it's so stupid, these men and their footballs, the dumbest thing in the world. Well, I've watched you watch your cooking shows. And I've watched you watch your fixer-upper shows. And some of you would rather go listen to the Magnolia House in Waco, Texas, than you would to be in the presence of Almighty God. And I want us to think, and I want you to know, I'm not immune to this. I'm not immune to this. And when things don't turn out the way they do, we become angry. And so if the Bears lose tonight, the city of Chicago will be in a deep depression. And we will turn on our radios and we'll hear the most ungodly things about the coaches and the teams that we were celebrating 20 minutes beforehand. We will hate them with a rabid hatred. And we'll see it on Facebook and we'll see it all over the place. And I'm telling you, listen, is football or Magnolia House or whatever they call that thing in Waco all you ladies want to go to, are those bad things? No. God goes as far to say as those are their good gifts from our God in heaven. But here's the problem. We make them bad when we elevate them to a place higher than God. And you say right away, the bears. And that thing, that person isn't higher than God. Well, let me ask you the question. What engages your deepest emotion? Does God bring you the most celebration? Does God in your spiritual walk with Him bring you the greatest joy, the greatest happiness? Do you see God involved in your comings and goings of life? Or is it about that thing or that person or that want or desire that when it doesn't live itself out, you get all mad? Or if it does happen, you're filled with ecstasy. You see, you can say whatever you want about your idol. It is your emotions that are going to tell you what is most important. So I know this is a hard conversation, so let me help you out. And I shared this in the first service, and, and I'll share it again. As a father, it's really easy to make your children idols. Real easy. And they're great. They're gifts from God. The Bible says it numerous times. Children are, are gifts of the Lord. And it's getting really easy to make them idols in our world of social media and all of that. And we make them idols because we want our kids to do things we've never done before and and all of that. And and I'm just going to get real with you. Because I hope that my honesty will help you to see at times how insidious the subtlety of, of idols are. So my idol started growing back in June. My son Noah got invited. I remember, I'll never, never forget the day. It was one of the prouder days of, of my time as, as a parent. The varsity basketball coach came to my son who was a freshman at the time. And he says, we love how you're playing, Noah. And he says to me, man, Noah's a great, great uh, teammate. He's a great leader on the team. He's a great athlete. And he says, what I want to do starting here is I, I want to bring him up to the varsity level. Oh, how many dads that just, man, that's heaven on earth, right? And he says, but I also want him to play sophomore basketball as well, so we're gonna ask you to play two games. Every night we play, everybody plays one game, Noah, you're gonna play two games. And, and I'm sitting there going, how awesome. How awesome this is gonna be, and the season starts, and, and I'm loving it. And so when people ask how things are going, I lead with, man, this is what Noah's doing, I'm a proud dad, and, and I should be. Noah's a great kid, I don't know if he's in here or not, but he's a great kid, and I'd say that whether he was in here or not. All my kids are great kids, and your kids are great kids, right? We, we should talk about that. But I started to sense a little more and more, man, this excitement's getting the best of me. That on Tuesday night and Friday night, and any time there was a game, It was, man, I'm excited. I want to go see it. Noah was going to play in a Christmas tournament. He was going to play eight or nine games in a four-day period. Our Christmas vacation was going to watch Noah play basketball. That is until on his 16th birthday, Noah defended a man who was about to get a charge, and he got knocked over, and in the process of getting knocked over, in that split second, he broke his wrist. And we knew it right away. And uh, i got to preface this. Noah didn't break his wrist because his dad's got an idol. So I want you to know that, okay? But here's when I knew it had become an idol in my life. I was devastated. I think I was more devastated than he was. He said, it's okay, Dad. It's okay. Noah turned 16. He broke his arm. He still hasn't gotten his driver's license because his arm's in a sling, poor guy. And yet I want you to know I learned in those next couple days when I couldn't concentrate on anything, when I couldn't find joy, when I couldn't find peace, when I got angry with God, that basketball, high school class A basketball, was more important to me than I ever thought. What idols do you have in your life that you have allowed little by little to get bigger and bigger and you don't even know it? Be careful. Idols engage our deepest emotions. i got to move on. Number three, they will be passionately protected. The rioting group would do everything in their power to protect it. Even if that meant hurting someone else, we will protect what we have, they said. You mess with Artemis, we're coming at you. We'll drag you in here. We'll beat you up. We'll maybe even kill you. We're dealing with this, and some of us right now, right where we are sitting, are passionately protecting, and you're saying in your heart, I know it because I was there, I was there with my own idols, where I sit and go, really, is it an idol? Really? Hey, hey, idol, stand behind me, that big bald guy isn't going to get to you. No, it's just a football game. It's just TV. It's just a dress. It's just a car. It's just a house. It's just a way of life. No, no, idol. You stay back here. I'll protect you. You don't, don't let God or that big ugly bald guy get in your way. You're okay. And what do you need? You need a little money? Here's some money. Do you need more of my time? I'll serve you. I'll, I'll get, my schedule's too busy? Okay, idol. I'll free my schedule. That means I gotta quit going to church every once in a while. That's okay. I'll do that. And we sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. And right now some of you are not heeding the word of God and allowing the spirit of God you're protecting your idol and you'll do it because that idol's more important than life itself Notice finally it'll demand way more than it will deliver Nothing is said about what Artemis gives the Ephesians nothing They're fighting for this goddess that it doesn't all that happened was a rock fell from the sky they said And nothing has changed them, nothing's impacted them, and they're willing to protect it. You know, we protect and we make idols and things that say they're going to deliver, but they never do. They never do. Listen, how many of us went into Christmas year this year saying, it's going to be the best Christmas ever. I'm going to get this gift, I'm going to get this thing, and you open it, and you're like, yes, I got what I wanted, only to find out by January you're not using it. It's lost its luster. And some of us are pursuing idols and following after idols, and you're thinking at some point it's going to deliver, at some point it's going to deliver, and it never does. That relationship never delivers. Some of you have made idols of your spouse, and you're in perpetual sadness because your idol, your spouse, has never been able to do what only God can do. Some of you are idolizing your kids. And one of these days, those idols are going to get up and walk away, and you're going to be devastated because you didn't walk with the Lord. You walked with their kids, and they moved on with their life, and you didn't. And we call it with nice words, that's the emptiness, and that's the depression that many emptinessers have. Well, when you build your kids into being something that they're not, listen, kids will come and go, but your relationship with Jesus remains steadfast. And you sit there and say, Tim, you, man, this sounds legalistic. Brothers and sisters, we are a perpetual factory of idols. And we've got to be careful because what idols do, listen to me, they steal our joy. They steal our joy. And God wants us to have joy. One final thing, and I've got to close, but one final truth I want you to see is that we see a strategy of engagement. So we see the issue of idols, and that's by far the most important thing. But there's a secondary truth, and that is how do we engage a world that's hostile towards us? Number one, write this down, mob rule is antithetical to our calling, so don't follow the world. So here's the thing, the way that things got done in Ephesus was you made a lot of noise and you got people screaming about stuff and you worked them up into a fever pitch and then things would get accomplished. How ironic that that sounds how things get done here in America today. Let's get a whole bunch of people together. Let's start yelling and screaming about a problem. Let's demonize a person that we think is the core of the problem. Let's hate everybody who agrees with them. And we've got mob rule. But I want you to know, Christians, that's not a calling that we can't protest. It's not a calling that we can't speak up in the culture. But what does the Bible tell us? I wrote down the following. I said that with regards to our approach... To mob rule, the Bible says that mobs are inherently sinful because they're filled with sinful anger. They're irrational. They have sinful tactics and demeaning speech. Whereas our calling as believers is to believe the best and hope the best. To show love, to speak in love, to forgive and love our enemies and to seek to live at peace with all men. That doesn't work in a mob. And so be careful, there's no issue, listen to me, there's no issue in Washington, D.C. that is worth you losing your testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't follow the ways of the world. Mob rule is going on on our radios. Mob rule is going on in our television. Mob rule is going on, and sadly, at times within our legislature and in our judicial systems, and even in the executive branch. And we as Christians need to model to the world we are as gentle as doves. Number two, approaches to the world will vary greatly, Christians. So be flexible. This is just a secondary thing, but verse 30 and 31 shows this little uh, vignette of what's going on outside of the theater where Paul and his associates are sitting there going, okay, what do we do? We've got Gaius and Aristarchus and, in the theater. They've been dragged in. we got to do something. And Paul says, let me go. I want to go in there. Let me, let me address it. Let's deal with this situation head on. And then a group of disciples say, no, Paul, no. We're going to step back. We're going to not engage at this time. This is not a good place for us to do the gospel work. And we're going to take a step back. And so there's these varying views of how to engage the world. And I want you to know we live in a time where there are varied views within the church of how to engage the world. And what we needs to happen is inside somewhere by ourselves as Christians, we need to come to a consensus and figure out how we're going to engage the world. And when there's a consensus... As we're flexible with one another, we in unity respond together. And so as this church tries to figure out how do we deal with the hostile world around us, there's going to be varying ways of how we can do it. And we need to be flexible. But when it's time to act, we need to act in solidarity, not fractured. Because the gates of hell will always defeat a fractured church. But when we stay united under the banner of Christ in love and and unity with one another, then nothing will stop us, not even the gates of hell. Number three, as I close, the antidote for all idolatry is the gospel. So Christians stay focused. There are idols all around us. They seek to tempt us away from God, to distract us and move us to become more and more devoted to them instead of God. Paul told the church at Corinth, Flee from idols. John told the church in 1 John to turn away from all idols. How do we do that? Listen, and I will close. We're done. By seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ as so beautiful and as so great. The crowd said, Great is Artemis. Listen, the only way you'll stop saying of the things of this world that they are great is you will say this, and this will help you greatly. If you start saying, the bears are good, but God is great. Okay? Let's keep going. Our our dreams and our desires are good, but God is great. Our kids are good, but God is great. Sex is good, but God is great. Our pursuits are good, but God is great. When we begin to worship like that, the idols will begin to be stripped out of our lives. And so never think and use discernment in what I've said today. I'm not telling you to not root for your bears, but root greater for God. Live greater for God. And we won't fall into the trap of the Ephesians dead. And sadly, they had reason. They were blind, dead, and held captive by the devil. We have life in the one that God sent, Jesus Christ. And there is no equal, no competition to the great I am.